0: From the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, I'm Matt Siebel. Mark Twain was, by all accounts, including his own, a comically incompetent prospector. After his last failed attempt to strike it big with his own claim during the Nevada Silver Rush of the early 1860s, he transitioned back into a profession he had largely abandoned, first to become a steamboat pilot and then, like Huck, to escape the Civil War by lighting out for the territory. As editor of the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise, he soon realized he was better positioned to profit from the silver mania than he had been working a claim himself. In order to fund their mining operations, prospectors often had to sell shares in their claims. These securities were referred to as feet, giving the impression that shareholders were entitled to a certain percentage of the square footage of a claim. Twain's newspaper played a key role in the early version of the securitization process, not only as the primary medium for advertising the initial public offerings, but also as a kind of an unofficial ratings agency. Many of the columns of the territorial enterprise were filled with reporting, editorializing, and outright gossip about mining operations throughout the region. Twain was uniquely positioned to drive demand for these securities, and so it was common practice for prospectors to bribe him with shares. If he succeeded in hyping a claim, he could sell his own shares into the bull market he had created. Twain wrote to his family in 1863, I pick up a foot or two occasionally for lying about somebody's mine. I take an absorbing delight in the stock market. I love to watch the prices go up. My time will come after a while, and then I'll rob somebody." It didn't take long for Twain to realize that if this grift could be mastered by wildcat editors and frontier speculators, it was likely working on a much grander scale elsewhere as publishing magnets and syndicates of Wall Street tycoons like Cornelius Vanderbilt and Jay Gould manipulated the stock prices of much larger prizes like the Erie Railroad and Gold Futures, in part by partnering with New York City newspapers and professional publicists like Jim Fisk. This formula, the touting of specious enterprise with the cooperation of a mass media platform, is recycled over and again Whether by the Wall Street Journal columnists who pumped up RCA's price during the first retail trading boom in the 1920s, or CNBC's talking heads inflating the dot-com bubble in the late 1990s, or our Wall Street Bets posters using their forum, Braveheart Memes, and a new retail trading application, Robinhood, to drive up the price of stonks like AMC, Bed Bath & Beyond, and GameStop. This most recent iteration of speculative euphoria enabled by mass media is one of the first unexpected challenges to face the freshly inaugurated Biden administration. As new Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, subject of Dessa's viral rap, Who's Yellen Now?, must play a prominent role in the federal response to the potentially destabilizing volatility created by the GameStop rally. She has received millions of dollars in speaking fees from hedge funds, including some of those with considerable exposure in the way of short positions. On Monday, February 8th, I was joined by three of my favorite voices in critical finance studies and literary criticism. A subfield of literary studies, which I should probably add, I also consider my research specialization. Our conversation ranges from the long hangover of the 2008 global meltdown, to the unsettled media ecology of the platform economy, to the social costs of too-big-to-fail economic policies. Anna Cornblue is professor of English at University of Illinois Chicago. She is author of Realizing Capital, Financial and Psychic Economies in Victorian Form, Marxist Film Theory, and Fight Club, and most recently the order of forms realism formalism and social space she is also the founding facilitator of the v21 collective Leclerc claire is associate professor of english at borough of manhattan community college part of the cuny system she is author of scandals and abstractions financial fiction of the long 1980s and more recently, Wages Against Artwork, Decommodified Labor, and the Claims of Socially Engaged Art. She is also co editor with Allison Schonkweiler of Reading Capitalist Realism. Michelle Chihara is Associate Professor of English at Whittier College. She is co editor with Matt Siebold of the Rutledge Companion to Literature and Economics. She is also section editor of the Economics and Finance Desk at the Los Angeles Review of Books. Among the works we talk about in this episode are two of Michelle's published essays and one on lift and gig work, which is forthcoming. For a bibliography of all today's guests and works mentioned during our conversation, please visit marktwainstudies.org backslash Robin I hope you enjoy Robin Hood, Our Wall Street Bets, Who's yelling Now, and The Game Stopification of Finance. I wanted to start where we kind of left off a couple of weeks ago on Twitter with the question of what Anna called mass financial literacy. Next month will be the 13th anniversary of the Bear Stearns collapse, one of the first well-publicized dominoes to fall in the global financial crisis of 2007-2008, a crisis which arguably has never ended but has just been pinballing around the world a perpetual string of crises, the fallout from which disproportionately has fallen on global south economies, the precariat everywhere, but which occasionally leaps back into the limelight when it affects something like the eurozone or oil prices or brings down a hedge fund. And I wanted to read something that Michelle wrote in reviewing Anna and Lee Claire's books in 2015, uh, Michelle said global banking has become terribly complex, both on the level of the stochastic equations used to build pricing models and in terms of the daisy chains of risk created by things like the credit default swaps of the 2008 crisis. But we don't have to know the equations to see that complexity as part of a ruse that bankers find convenient to wave in front of reformers like Elizabeth Warren. The idea that finance is a naturally complex lifeblood of our economy whose path only a rare fried group of white men can chart and not the triumph of the middleman, that's a trope. It's a cultural narrative with material consequences. It's a cultural narrative that engages with the question of what is and isn't real because, for example, only Goldman Sachs' money was treated as real in the last crisis. And so, what I wanted to begin with this question was has that narrative, right, that trope that Michelle's talking about and which she, she says is sort of being interrogated in both of your books, have we? Become better at recognizing it as a fiction, right? As constructed, are we part of a more financially literate society? Who now one of the things that we might see in the you know the Reddit revolution, right? The GameStop rally is an extent to which all of the coverage of 2008 and its ensuing crises have allowed. Uh, a much larger portion of the population to recognize the failings and the frauds of Wall Street? Are Michael Lewis and Adam McKay and Andrew Ross Sorkin and Brian have they are they in some ways culpable for the GameStop <laughs> mania and whatever it reaps because they've taught a huge proportion of at least the American population or the global North population that they can also Create a bubble.
1: You know, the the Wall Street bets is they're pissed at Andrew Ross Sorkin right now because he has come in and started to to this group that I think he has played a role in he shine light on some of how this works and now they know and then he's come in and been like, Well, you guys still have to be careful and they're pissed about that. There was a tweet during the whole GameStop run-up where um, one of the Wall Street Bets folks had posted one of the regulators on CNBC, I think it was a Massachusetts regulator saying, you know, well, we're concerned because these are unsophisticated traders and there's risk, but then there's reckless risk. And it was just a a short video of this, uh, one of the guys laughing in the background when he, this regulator talked about reckless risk. And I think that that is unquestionably different. And what some of what E-Trade and Robinhood have done is, create a path for they are not unsophisticated investors to organize and really affect the markets in these ways. And I think the thing that Andrew Ross Sorkin and the other commentators that I've heard talking have not really addressed is it's not just who these investors are, it's their ability to organize on Reddit mm-hmm. and then affect the market. And I think that's the thing that the hedge funds and the institutional investors weren't counting on. It's not just that they thought that the, this was dumb money. It's also that I think that they assumed that dumb money wouldn't have institutional powers like organizing en masse and really getting each other to hold. That That's a huge part of what happened with GameStop. It's not just that the stocks started to go up because of their behavior, but because they then told each other, hold the line. They're posting Mm -hmm. this uh, Game of Thrones meme with Hodor holding the door, right? Hold the line. There's all these memes about that and that those memes actually became an organization tool. That, That to me is the thing that Andrew Rostorkin isn't talking about and that the regulator's not talking about. It's not just who has information. It's not just asymmetric information. It's not just what you know about GameStop stock. It's that these people used the tool to get into the market and then they used the tool to become an institution within that market.
2: I mean, I think that that's a a really important point, that we have this broader media ecology that's clearly part of the question about financial literacy. But I find it confusing within this kind of gamification and memification to really be able to disaggregate who are the institutional actors from who are the individual actors. Because we do know that in the time period that we're looking at, like in these 13 years or whatever, that actually retail investing has declined. Right. I mean, there's the kind of frenetic increase during the pandemic because people are stuck at home. But the percentage of corporate equities and mutual fund shares that are owned by average retail, you know, individual retail investors has been cut basically in half since 2008. Right. So there's just this continuing kind of upward accumulation of, of the ownership here that makes it extremely likely, as I think is starting to be reported a little bit, that there were all kinds of institutional actors participating in the game rally it it would take a lot of ethnography and media archaeology to figure out how much they're piggybacking on and how much they're actually driving and like you know which hedge fund dudes have like deep fucking value as their id on on the reddit forum (laughs) (laughs) he's kind of my favorite i think but like, (laughs) you know but i think that there's the question of the narrative of who these people are and the rhetorical and political work that a story that safe, not reckless and sophisticated and competent investors are, you know, that's the real stuff and there's the work that that narrative does, right? But then they're sort of like figuring out who actually are the agents here. Having been reading these things for weeks, I don't have a like, I think there's a, there's a counter narrative about political insurgency or something that has its own seductions. And I'm not sure if it's empirically true. Right.
1: Well, and also who, who Robin Hood is in that as well. Because they're, they're obviously their venture capital money. So it's venture capital and tech versus investment and hedge funds, which were before going against investment banks. And it's just money moving around among those power sources.
2: Right. Because remember the apps, the users are the product, right? Like (laughs) the, the data about the interface with these apps is then what Robinhood is really making money
1: on. Well, it's what Reddit's making money on. Certainly
2: true. Well, I don't
1: totally understand why Wall Street Bests are angry with Robinhood now for limiting trading, and there are commentators who think that Robinhood is playing a role in the in the runup in a way that they've not been transparent about. I'm unclear on. They say it's not a liquidity problem that they for the reason that they stopped trading, but it's not clear to me what's going on there. And clearly, Robinhood as the, the online face of cryptocurrency and a whole different power center and financial world is not when they say democratizing finance, right? All of our spidey senses should be going off that something is arrived. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I was just going to add, I mean, I think what you guys are saying, Michelle and Anna is true. I don't think, I, I don't think the chips have fallen yet. Right. In this particular narrative, I don't think we, we yet know many of the actors and constituents, as you guys rightly pointed out, and then the other thing I was thinking in response to your question, Matt, about is this a, is this a sort of fulfillment or sort of coming into being of a kind of mass financial literacy is I was wondering what it would mean to add a term like investee politics that Michelle Ferrer comes up with quite recently, right? I think that book is from 2017, you know, his questions of what is a kind of speculative agency? What is a democratic agency in a speculative age? how we might combine those with the kind of need for a forensic media archaeology, as it were, of exactly who is organizing this and to what end, and what the denouement is, which we d- we just we don't. We don't know yet. In a lot of financial stories and financial narratives, the moment of crisis is very organizing and has a lot of impetus behind it. But the conclusion is often quite different, right? And I think it's it's important to sort of watch that bifurcation and see, you know, again, where the chips ultimately fall in this particular event.
0: Well, that's part of the things that, that interests me so much about the narrative as it's being constructed right now. And I utterly agree that it's a specious narrative and one that will likely change dramatically in the coming months and years. But one of the things I find so interesting about it is that it was, at least in the first week, a sort of collision of the, you know, the retail day trader and the short, particularly the, you know, the hedge fund short seller. That seems like a kind of full circle from 2008, right? Where we began with a narrative about the banks and the banks making these terrible bets. And over time, particularly thanks to Michael Lewis and Adam McKay in The Big Short, it became about oh, these short sellers that foresaw the crisis, that participated in creating the crisis, that profited from the crisis. And I I think it took a long time. They were initially sort of heroes. They became sort of demons over the course of a decade. And now they were sort of the targets of the initial wave of narrative of this crisis. One of the things that most interests me is the extent to which Robin Hood clearly in the naming of its app itself much less the uh, the actual purpose of the app was marshaling some of that post 2008 set of narratives where does that app fit and you know not just it but the it, Michelle mentioned e-trade and all of these sort of consumer platforms for trading Anna makes a wonderful point, right? This has arguably been good for them, right? Even though there's been bad press around Robinhood, particularly stopping people from buying GameStop, if really the goal of those apps is to monetize the user, then The way in which they have been in the media has clearly grown their potential user base dramatically. That's the reason why they were able to raise billions of dollars more or less overnight, even in the face of, you know, having all of these credit calls.
2: I read that, uh, 3 million people have downloaded (laughs) Robin hood since January. So (laughs) yeah. So I think that it's important to both be skeptical about
1: their claims of democratizing finance and to to try to keep a clear view that the story isn't over. But I also think Robinhood is not a media company in the sense that they're not monetizing eyeballs. It it seems clear to me that they're monetizing volatility itself. They make more money per trade than E-Trade does. From what I can tell, that's the difference between them. So they're more like a company that's trying to profit off of kind of the volume of trading and the volume of high-frequency trading that's going on at the retail level. So they need users, and they do need people like the Wall Street Bets folks to stay on their app in order to continue to make money that way. And those folks were really angry about the Robinhood Super Bowl spot, which had this much more kind of... Um, we the people tone. Then, for example, the E-Trade spot. The E-Trade spot was about you can work out your mental muscles. You you can make yourself a fit investor through E-Trade as opposed to Robinhood, which was like, we are all investors. <laughs> so they're really coming in for angry, angry criticism on Wall Street facts And I think that that's part of how these narratives matter in this moment where these companies are starting to get market share, right? What they're trying to do is get too big to fail so that when they're part of the next crisis, they're the one who'll get bailed, bailed out instead of Melbourne Capital, right? So, so I think that in that sense, it does matter. And I, I, I do think that the people who are involved in this, on the one hand, they're the consumer, they're the product, and they, but they, it it does matter how much they understand about the markets because it, it matters whether they think that Robinhood is treating them fairly, because that will have a um, an effect on Robin Hood's bottom line. I mean, it's it's a feedback loop in these different ways. but
0: As you say that, Michelle, I kind of think about your article on Lyft and Uber and the way in which Lyft was able to use the bad publicity against Uber, even though Lyft was arguably doing all of the same kinds of (laughs) gigification, if not worse, right? It didn't have this, you know, Me Too scandal at the center of it. And Lyft came to be a competitor exactly because it was able to become the woke.
1: Completely. Completely. These companies, they need, I call it a runway of trust, right? They really need this runway of trust at the beginning when they're doing this work of disrupting and and they need that narrative that they are the disruptor on the side of the people. It could have serious consequences for Robinhood's ability to stay around if the Wall Street Bets folks completely turn on them and go, you know, go looking for another place to do this. So to that extent, I think it matters that they understand. It matters what's going on. It matters the political aspects of these narratives matter because there is no there is no a political merit based real economy for us to participate in. It's just all this churn. <laughs>
2: I don't know if the Robinhood long game is like as big of a factor here, because for a couple of reasons, One, as you've narrated yourself, they've gone from being a media company to operating exactly the way the hedge funds do, which is that it's volume that is what is effective for them. The hedging is like essentially balancing out their risks by taking both positions all the time. The funds com- you know, combine leverage and counter leverage so that they, they, they come out ahead on volume. And so the Robinhood is functioning the way that the funds are. But then Robinhood has put this pressure on the conventional houses, on Schwab and ETrade and so on, that they now don't have transaction fees, or they've come, they've sort of obsoletized themselves in the gamification of trading. I still think there's a kind of question of whether the retail investors actually are some kind of like youth, with with like whether it's an expanding base or not. I guess you could put it that way, because it doesn't seem like the information on the kind of shadow institutional actors or on the you know number of Arizona or the people involved in it, it supports fully like the notion that these are apps that have changed the way the stock market functions because there's so many people involved in them. Robinhood isn't functioning on the both sides of bets in the same way
1: that the hedge funds are. Right. The presence of the retail money is different. It's I don't think we know how different and I don't think we know um, exactly like we don't have a bird's eye view of how much money. But the consequences to the hedge funds were
2: real. Well, or not. Or not, right? I mean, Melvin Capital got bailed out by some other hedge fund, right? I mean, Steve Cohen has re-legitimated himself, right? right? Steve <laughs> Cohen's hedge fund, SAQ, no, that's the journal, SAC, that had to close, <laughs> you know, for insider trading and all kinds of terrible things. He's just come in with like, what, $30 billion to bail out Melvin? And that's going to be very profitable for him and a re-legitimating thing for him because he had lost his fund. Right. But I, I do think that the retail credit
1: market. People's engagement with credit card companies, with retail credit and with stock trading is changing. and i I do think it's important to keep a granular sense of of that mattering because what it's what matters to us as critics, right is kind of people's engagement, right? Mm-hmm. So to some degree, we don't care whether it's Melvin capital, you know Steve Cohen and these guys or some other venture capital more invested in tech. The way that people engage with, with these products and these markets is changing. Even if the amount of money in the stock market is primarily institutional investors, most of that is, mm-hmm. is starting to move into these dark pools. We don't know what's going on for the most part in the stock market. And it seems utterly unconnected from the real economy. But the people who did make money on GameStop, the individual investors, I do care about them mm-hmm. as the kind of representation of working people in <laughs> these ways that they can get sucked up into the stock market that might be beneficial to them or might be harmful, I think how that's working does matter on some basic level. And it's different, especially because I think credit card retail is changing, right? Um, young people are less likely to have credit cards now, and more likely to have something like a cryptocurrency or that's going to change the way these big companies operate and try to make money off of us. And I think we have to try to understand both the
3: narratives and, and then how it's working. Mm-hmm. Going back to your first question, Matt, about the sort of pedagogical moment to come out of this, if 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 there is one. I was thinking about Doug Henwood's piece in Jacobin, where he sort of says, could one of the lessons for the, uh, you know, I'm putting in air quotes, obviously it's a podcast, but average reader slash average investor slash millennial slash Twitter user slash what have you, really be to demonstrate the sort of gamified Atlantic City-like drama of the stock market vis-a-vis everyone else's economy. And it reminds me a little bit, or we don't know yet, but in the flash crash of 1987, one of the, I don't know if it still is, but for a long time, it certainly was the the most severe drop of any stock index on a given day, Black Monday of 1987. By November and December, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they were reporting that there was this dramatic financial event in October and it had certainly shaped narratives and shaped realities on Wall Street, but not really anywhere else in the country. And there was this sort of divorce between the Wall Street based or we can now say financial world, their narratives, their dramas, their anxieties and the rest of the country. And I think now if anything, there's an interesting sort of moment where the financial has more visibility, is better able and more quickly able to be narrated, but perhaps matters less. I mean, I wonder if that's a gap that we would want to think about exploring. Yeah, and one of the things that that makes me think about with
1: GameStop in particular is that the hedge funds going against it seemed to me to be essentially the same kind of operation that the mergers and acquisitions were in the '80s. Mm. It was taking a a company that that has a lot of assets liabilities that are you know old school, right? This is a, a company that has a bunch of mall stores, and they were going to sell it for parts. Right, right. And this was this was a mergers and acquisitions move,
3: right? Right. That's such an interesting connection.
1: And you know, I'm thinking about like the you know, old narratives, you know, pretty woman, remember, like, the, the, <laughs> the reason Gordon Gecko is so terrible, these guys are so terrible is because they sell these companies for parts. So the, the retail investors were in there, like, we're going to save this it's almost like a nostalgia thing. We're going to save this game store with their mall stores. And it, it was a way that not only could they kind of affect the markets and take down the big guy, but it had this kind of real world sense of we're going to protect mm-hmm. this old school thing that we like. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was a narrative that really got people emotionally involved mm-hmm. because the stock market otherwise seems so completely divorced from what's going on for everyday people. You know, there's, there's pictures during the pandemic of... You would show these stock market rallies while, you know, just the country's unemployed and our, our cities are crumbling, unless like stock market rallies.
3: Right, right.
0: As Lee Claire was talking, the first thing that came to mind was that we all got together on Zoom in last time in like March and we were talking about the coronavirus crash. And honestly, I think that was a bigger, had some bigger single day drops than Black Monday did.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think yet,
0: so like in a matter of weeks, it disappeared, right? From, you know, from mainstream news. So the, the stock market bounced back, as Michelle was saying, everything else, employment level, all of these other economic factors are crashing the market became completely separate from that reality and it only sort of dives back into the news
2: now it, i mean it is the case though that it re- recovered or rallied because of fed policy right? right it recovered or rallied because the fed bought debt from a whole lot of blue chip companies it recovered or rallied because you know our entire failed state and our complete non-pandemic response had the exception of the PPP loans, which actually went to some pretty wealthy people and pretty wealthy companies, right? And the only, you know, effective administration of the loans was through the bigger banks that bigger small businesses already had long-term relationships with, and that's how the kind of money pumped out. And so the there was actually quite effective federal propping up of the market and that and that's a i think really important piece of the story there's the pandemic piece of people are doing day trading because they're at home right they're bored and because the market seems to be the only functioning institution and then there's the piece of our government has once again devoted itself to upward transfer of wealth right and that's where the rally comes from you know
3: right i mean aside from (laughs) amazoning It's such a great point, Anna, and we can also link this back to Matt's introductory comments where he said, we're, we're still sort of in the 2007-2008 moment, the sort of long hangover from Bear Stearns. It's the same Fed policy. that The money from 2007-2008, the bailout money from 10 years ago, was already propping up the market. And then when it looked like maybe a pandemic would evacuate some of that liquidity, there's now another injection of it. Right? And
1: and the companies that have been able to benefit from the pandemic have not only received federal support, as Ann's pointing out, but also they're the ones who use the sudden need for on-demand delivery at home to lock in labor practices. This is what I was talking about with Lyft. They used that runway of trust at the beginning to establish themselves as tech companies and not labor practices companies which is effectively what they are and then doordash lyft uber all of these delivery companies and amazon as well have used the pandemic to both kind of put a pandemic wash cover on what they're doing that we we support you during this but because the money was paid out to independent contractors as small businesses some of the federal money and state money went out to them So they needed that. So then they needed independent contractor status, which allowed these companies to help lock in Prop 22 in California, which is one of the worst things to happen to the labor movement in recent history. And now they're gonna try to export Prop 22 and what it does to employment to other states. They're being able to be propped up in the pandemic to do all of that and to lock that stuff in. So that's all really dark.
0: (laughs) <laughs> That's like the darkest possible segue into my next question. Anna gave a talk last week at the Humanities Center in Chicago, in which she was, among other things, talking about the illusion of immediacy in auto fiction and auto theory. But more directly relevant to our conversation, it, the kinds of compulsions which digitization and mediation disguise. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your how your thinking applies to this Reddit revolution, as CNBC has been calling it. To what extent do you see Robin Hood as a kind of way of masking, turning our, our compulsions into a form of freedom, or at least an illusion of freedom?
2: Wow. I mean, I certainly think that the essential model of soliciting our... Clicking in order to have monetizable data, uh, you know, so the process of discretization is a kind of important counterweight to the notion that this is an everyman movement or that this is a meaningful political surge. But I'm not sure what the what the compulsions are or if we know, because it seems like there's such a incredible little bit diversity of the redditors who've been profiled right there are <laughs> these 19 year olds who are at hooters from in indiana i don't know if you read that story yesterday in the new york times that was kind of amazing of like this profile of seven game stoppers and like what they've done with their wins or losses <laughs> and almost all of them have lost <laughs> did you read it it was amazing and like no,
3: but give us a little bit of a taste Okay,
2: so the main guy is like a 19-year-old who the first day went to Hooters and got extra wings, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He ended up making like $50,000 in some total. He thought he was going to make a quarter of a million dollars. But he's 19. He's in Indiana. He's got like a leather jacket in the photo. But then there's also this woman who is a Polish immigrant, who's in her 50s, whose parents lost their home, like they also immigrated with her, they lost their home in 2008. And she works a minimum wage job at like Bed Bath and Beyond or something. And she was like, I don't care if I lose all you know, $900 that I put into this, to me, I'm sticking it to them. And she was very politically eloquent, even though she's lost money she can ill afford to lose. And there's kind of this accounting of, you know, Michelle was talking about the hold the frame and the hold the hold the stock memes and stuff. There's this notion that people are sort of accrediting each other with moral or political agency and a social capital within these forums where it's like i got you i know you or you're gonna you're gonna have I, there was some phrase i even saw one of them you know i'm still holding and this guy says you have more clout than if you didn't like if you're if you're there on the forum and you're able to be sort of testifying that you didn't sell it last week or whatever mm. you know where are we it's 59 today So that's still four times what most people would have bought it. at. I'm still holding is this capital that people get, and then they accrue likes and whatever, and followers on their Reddit brand. And then that maybe redounds to their ability to go fund me or whatever, or raise capital for some project that they might be involved in. So there's just all these kind of (laughs) highly diverse libidinal reasons why the people who do identify as individual actors, which may not be true in the actual forums, right? The people presenting themselves as individuals may not be. So there's all this diverse, emotional, irrational, you know, set of motivations. I would be tempted to say that the, you know, that the way that the app works for them and the way that the discussion forms in particular, right? As Michelle was saying, is this ability to communicate about what we're doing and coordinate what they're doing that there's this notion that they can make their irrational exuberance or their optimistic commitment or their vengeance telegraphable and sort of adhere to themselves as an online footprint of a emerging brand or something that maybe you know would fit into this kind of sense of emanation or the production of on the one hand discretization on the other hand like self-profiling right
3: I think I wonder though, also, I mean, I I think what you're saying is wonderful and so eloquent. And I have sort of two responses. I mean, one Mm -hmm. is the ability of the platforms to indulge in the repetition compulsion in ways that earlier investment platforms Mm -hmm. just, just have not offered, but also a sense of mimicry. And what I mean by that is, I'm thinking about, I'll be the historian of the episode, I'm thinking about like, Texts from the 1980s that say somebody like oh well, I don't know Donald Trump wrote uh, <laughs> you know the art of the deal or T Boone Pickens has one just called Boone. When there's this whole series of these aggrandizing investment advice books published by Wall Streeters in the 1980s that say to the reader, you too can become a financier. Right. If you read this book, you too can join this world. What kind of discursive world is that and where does it exist? It's really difficult to say in the 1980s. And I think what you're pointing out now, Anna, is that it absolutely exists. And through mimicry, through repetition, all of these new sort of identities and pathways of these different discourses become possible in ways that they just didn't before win or lose. I mean, we know how the stock market works. Most people end up losing. I mean, the house has a certain advantage. We don't yet know who the house is. I think that's what's sort of like interesting about the the conversation here. So I I think about behavioral economists who
1: are making the claim, this is my whole thing, they've been making this claim for a while now that the markets are not rational, that investors are irrational, and that it's an understanding irrationality from the perspective of enlightened people who can discern what's rational and what's not, that we will be able to kind of tame and control the markets. There are also the people who have been writing and studying things like online addiction. I think that the model of addiction is complicated, but important to think about here, because what the GameStop experience is going to give a a certain number of people is an experience of an early win, beginner's luck, which is in online gaming and poker and gambling addictions, the beginner's luck win is one of the big ways that the casino gets you roped in. Because when you have that dopamine release and it has social support around it, so when you win and then a bunch of people see you win, the lights go off on your little one-armed bandit, that's a huge indicator for making people vulnerable to addiction. There have been boundaries around what people can do in terms of getting addicted to online stock picking as if it were online gambling. SEC got involved in shutting down online gambling in 2011, right? Black Friday, when they really shut down the poker site. Mm-hmm. Being addicted to these things is a real subjective position, like it can happen to you. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that everyone who's participating in this stuff is irrational. And it doesn't mean that all of the people who have beginners luck will become addicted in ways that are dangerous to their ability to survive. The other thing that I find complicated to think about, and, and I think about this, especially in, in what you've written about Anna, about form and organization, right? that we, we have to be building something. But I think one of the things that the GameStoppers are going to have had is the experience of organizing precisely because it wasn't just about money. Mm-hmm for a lot of them, mm-hmm. and of being heard, and of being part of a group that got something accomplished. Mm-hmm. That's an important part of the way organizers get addicted to political
3: organizing. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> And you can't separate the things easily. Right. I think here's where we would want to ask to your point, Michelle, like, again, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Michelle Ferrer Investing Politics book, but is this an example of a new kind of investor organized politics and political possibility from an investor class even if that class was constituted in you know Indiana at a Hooters for an afternoon (laughs) right or is this something else do we need a kind of financial and a kind of speculative qualification on this kind of activity right how is it made different and how is it made new in that it's transpiring vis-a-vis an app and vis-a-vis Reddit.
0: This idea that there's a sort of collective politic converging around these platforms that is so diverse and diluted that it's really hard for us to understand the the ideological contours of it, right? And that in some ways it reminds me of Bernie and Trump, right, these two sort of political movements that we spent a lot of time trying to understand and almost all of the narratives were specious if not constru- constructed purposely by media companies to sell whatever they were selling, right? And it seems like one of the things that's happening with the you know, investor centered collective politic, right, is that these people are converging around something like AMC or GameStop, and factors like nostalgia clearly have a play there. And I think of things like AMC and GameStop and Blockbuster, I think of these as the monopolistic companies that hollowed out America during the mid 20th century, but clearly for another generation, they associate them with the things that got destroyed by Amazon and Walmart. And so it's like,
3: right. The good old days. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So the the politics that are converging in real collective action are so diverse and dilute and difficult for us to to parse. Mm -hmm. And yet they, they are mobilizing into something.
2: I think it's really um, significant. I love that point, Matt. And I think it's really significant in this respect, to, just to be literalist about it, that this is about games, right? It is about gaming. It is about play. It is about cinema. It is about pleasure. There is a broader gamification, right? That is partly that everybody has language about it's the game, right? This is how I win the game. How he says in Uncut Gems, right? That's what JLo says in that line in Hustlers. It's just being in the game and the joyful aspects. <laughs> of that. There's also the relevant, I think, kind of obscure 2018 Supreme Court decision about um, the kind of deregulating of a betting on sport from Nevada. Like, so this is now like legal kind of nationwide and is happening in increasing capacity so that there's all these kind of like legal and cultural kinds of um, constellations now around play that might be models of political agency because it's something different than work.
1: The way that the um, Wall Street best guys are mad at Robin Hood is a lot like the way they would be mad at the casino for changing the rules mid-game.
2: Or at the game design company for, um, you know, changing how the game works or the network for canceling the show.
1: It's not that this was off-brand for you, it's that this this was the game that you said you were going to let us play Mm -hmm. and you can't change the rules mid-course.
0: For me at this point, and I agree with what has been said already, we don't really know what's happening or what's going to happen. But for me at this point, I've been trying to find that point of application, that point of pressure where the neoliberal illusion of a perfectly functioning, quantified market acting efficiently and rationally, like where that breaks down. And it always does. And it always becomes ideological or or interested at a particular moment. And for me, that, that moment is when the clearinghouse comes to Robin Hood, and from one day to the next says, we need a 500% increase in capitalization. And, you know, Robinhood realizes, okay, if they're asking for 3 billion today, we might be able to cover that, but if they ask for 6 billion tomorrow, our company will very quickly become bankrupt. Clearly, this is the moment where Robinhood decides that nobody can buy GameStop anymore. And that's the moment where the rally starts to go the other direction. One of the questions for me is, do we understand the clearinghouse well enough to even speculate as to why that pressure was exacted at that moment? To what extent that sort of very traditional functioning of of finance capital, right? The clearinghouse making the, the call, to what extent that has been disguised in all of this and who has agency in that moment? to sort of stop the speculative euphoria. And were they doing that for the good of the people who were participating in the rally? That's one of the things that Andrew Ross Sorkin has gotten in trouble with, is he seems to suggest that Robin Hood in that moment is being forced to make a decision that in the end will be better for the retail investor because they were participating in some sort of speculative euphoria that was inevitably gonna get them in trouble. And the further it went on, the longer it went on, the worse the bust was going to be. But I think that's a a very questionable argument. And I'm very curious about how you guys interpret that particular moment at this moment, recognizing that we will have more information (laughs) in the coming
3: months. I think back to all of the many moments, no doubt innumerable, since the early 2000s in which the decision was made not to do that. Like, let this go another day, let it go another week let it go until we realize a bailout is coming which it will if we let it get big enough because we have we'll have another QE2 right i think it's an interesting problem and i even i guess i would want like a counterexample of here's another time that call was made and here's how the organization worked because i i do think right now yeah it seems like a sort of A selective policy. Insulting and churchless pedagogical command. A sort of paternalistic. It's something to do, and I think this is part of what you're saying, it's
1: something to do with the power that Robin Hood had as an institutional player. Clearly Robin Hood is making money off of the rally and is trying to create a situation where it will be a major player in this. It is clearly told at some point by a larger power, you got to stop this now. And why it has to stop, what exactly is happening there. Some of the hedge funds that were participating in the they say they've now covered their positions, but they're allowed to suffer some of the consequences. So they're not the ones who is the actor who has the power to say now is when those consequences end and now is when Robin has to stop. That that's what I feel like I'm not exactly clear on. And and the story isn't over in, in that
3: sense. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think the story is not over. I mean, I don't mean to be conspiratorizing, but I I do feel that I read that there was an indication that Ken Griffin made Robin Hood do it because of his place in backing Melvin, but also his place vis-a-vis the Robin Hood leadership and some other kind of commitments of theirs. We don't really know the story. We don't know how apps function in the ecology of a regulation or not regulation. <laughs> because when an app suspends trading, those are totally different rules than when the exchange does it themselves. And um, has different triggers or it doesn't have rules. And they don't have to have rules because the consumer user agreements for the app <laughs> probably stipulate that they're allowed to do whatever they so this is all getting worked out now, right? Like
1: this is part of what's happening is that right. these are these are new players to some degree that function slightly differently, that have different asset costs traded in different ways with different commissions. And the rules are getting worked out right now.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that's what makes that moment so interesting to me is that okay, we're gonna decide to enforce a rule that there really isn't much precedent for, which doesn't mean there isn't logic for it, but that it's, I think, conspiratorial is a completely natural way to look at that moment right is who exerted pressure on depository trust and clearing company like who in that organization made that decision and who ex- ex- exerted pressure on them before uh, Lee Claire has to leave I wanted to make sure that I asked a question and I think this is a natural segue actually where does Janet Yellen fit in? All of this, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, Claire made reference earlier to the idea that the sort of moment of quantitative easing, right, which wasn't necessarily, it was before Yellen, but Yellen inherited the Fed that sort of set this whole set of norms in motion. And the very same day that GameStop burst into the mainstream, she was giving this speech at the Treasury, mm-hmm. in which she was giving us a little bit of hope that Treasury policy was going to be directed at o- alleviating economic...
2: Misery. Hardship.
0: <laughs> Misery, and immiseration. Yeah. I mean, and she said a lot of the right things in that speech. And then I, I want to say almost within hours, it was revealed that she had been giving all these speeches to some of the hedge funds and application venture capitalists that were involved in this huge scandal, if that's what you want to call it. Somehow at the center of these twin narratives, one of which is around a GameStop speculative moment and another which is about how is the Biden administration going to enforce a new economic regime? Right, And I was just curious how you're interpreting those moments sort of coming together around mm-hmm. what we also have to recognize is for many people, an iconic figure, and particularly in being the first woman to head treasury and the first woman to head the Fed. We, we all shared.
3: Who's yelling? Who's yelling now? That's a classic. <laughs> I mean.
0: But there's potentially a kind of... It's something conspiratorial about being.
3: It's a three-sided coin that always comes up heads. <laughs> I almost feel like that's the best answer to your question, Matt, is just to play that. Because I think whatever historical points or novelty that Yellen gets for being a woman and whatever full employment policies that she might have a hand in helping to implement, that is a constrained role that role of the treasury secretary. I I think that some of the contradictions that you're pointing out are maybe less about her and more about the, you know, the position, but I do think it would be a missed opportunity for you to not play that song somewhere on this show.
2: Yeah. I want it for my coming on music. (laughs) Um, I do do think though that like, okay, there's whatever two-facedness she is. The fact is that that speech, was fucking historical and remarkable and it speaks to this broader question we have about the legibility of casino capitalism she produced a a narrative that was radically repentant for the catastrophic failures of fed and treasury and federal non-response to 2008 which as matt said is why we're still living in 2008 and its consequences, right? She produced a very thorough story of what they fucked up. And that was just, that is now out there in the public record as an official mind saying this, not some Marxist at UMass Amherst and not, you know, Bernie and not like and I think that, that's, that that's like another kind of point in this continuum of like, what is the capacity of Americans to narrate Casino capitalism. What is the capacity of people to say it is all a game and it is stacked against us? And our agents of actual political determination have been using that power against average people.
1: I think that's exactly right and really eloquent. And also you should keep the cuss word, Matt. But <laughs> but I, I think that Yellen and what Anna's been talking about, you, you raised two terms, right? Legibility and conspiracy. And I think that those are two really important points in what we're talking about here, because one of the things that the participation of all these individual people, investors does, is make them legible to this financial capitalism that's increasingly run as a flow of data, and it forces people to be legible to that flow. At the same time, I think it's also that one of the things we've seen in this GameStop business is a way for people to make the casino game legible to themselves Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and both of those things matter and I think Yellen her ability to speak directly to people about the nature of the system that she's helping to run I think it's really important and I think that legibility matters a great deal, and it was very disappointing to find out who she had just taken a bunch of money from, (laughs) because those things matter to our ability to understand these power systems and not discipline ourselves as conspiracy thinkers when we really try to understand how this stuff matters. The word conspiracy theory has been used to discipline people's knowledge. To call something a conspiracy theory is a way of saying you can't understand it. It's not actually a pattern that you can make sense of there are real financial conspiracies that are not just conspiracies. <laughs> it is important how we, as people who are not part of the financial system, or at least we are not high financiers, that we remember that we can make this stuff legible to us enough that we can understand it and have a a political role in in the system.
2: I think this is just such an interesting problem about conspiracy. There's the problem of uh, discrediting like folk knowledge, right, that we're told, as you said, like, oh, that means that you can't understand it. If you think, if conspiracy is the term you reach for or something, but Jameson has this point that conspiracy theory is like a poor man's cognitive mapping that it's an effort to try to think systematically and to think about totality, to think about the network of relations that we find ourselves in. There's an important dilemma. How can we produce a ledger of all the ways that the people in power have set things up so that there are trillionaires and there are millions of hungry people. There is a causal relation there, and that relationship is managed by an oligarchic class. So how can we have that narrative of of what the oligarchy does to us and what the plutocrats do to us and not have it sound conspiratorial? That's why I like the Yellen speech, because she's sort of doing the narrative <laughs> for us. But the kind of memification of literacy or the you know the different rhetorics in which the notion that it's a game tracks or it get, are circulated. They don't all equally substantiate the account of power or the mapping of toda Some of them are silly, some of them are jokes.
1: Different power centers can use accusations of conspiracy theory in different ways. Mm-hmm. The politics of that do not always redound to a criticism of the oligarchic class, <laughs> right. but they can. So somewhere in there, we have to parse out, this is actually a conspiracy. This is a conspiracy theory that's doing interdisciplinary rhetorical work.
2: It's like, you think it's George Soros and the Jews. <laughs> there, I did notice that like the very first story that the New York Times posted quoted a Redditor saying, the globalists are against us, <laughs> right? It's like, you think it's George Soros, you think it's the globalists, it's actually Larry Summers.
0: <laughs> because we lived through the 2008 moment at what I think for all of us was kind of a pretty important moment in our critical development. It's a, a moment that we turned back back to often in our work. I think it's natural to now be staring at this story. Katie Baker described it as something like the, the mesrich apotheosis, right? We've, we've reached a moment in this GameStop news cycle where this isn't just going to be a like hot story for two weeks but actually the michael lewis's the ben mesrich's the william cohen's like they've all pulled out their notebooks at this point (laughs) there's going to be something at stake in writing the story of what has happened here and how, how did we get here where do we go from here what actually happened Right? That this is not just going to be something that was covered on you know, Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal and CNBC. Right? This is something that's going to get turned into Netflix series and Sony movies and New York Times bestsellers. Right? Yeah. What's, at, what's going to be at stake in those narratives? As we look back on the way in which the story of 2008 was told was so determinative on what has happened, I think, since. The last 10 years would be very different if Michael Lewis had chosen not to write the big short. Mm -hmm. What are the stakes of telling this story? Particularly if we want, like Anna just pointed us towards, right? if we want the human costs to stay at the center, right? Instead of it being a competition between the Axe Capitals and the Steve Cohens, and this kind of thing that we view from afar and oftentimes have its effect upon our broader economic system disguised to us. If we want to keep that narrative at the center, what are the stakes of telling this story?
2: To me, one thing that actually pops to my mind is like the gender question. Not only are there girl redditors or lady redditors, but who works in these companies that are being shorted? GameStop is retail. Bed Bath and Beyond is the other big one that we haven't talked about today, but is like almost equally as volatile and almost equally subject to the um, GSE board. Right. That is like 43,000 women. Sh- shorting is illegal. In a lot of countries, this 21st century version of corporate raidership, um, as Michelle was saying, right, this form of disregard for the human beings who are the service worker parts that you can strip a company for, mm-hmm. but actually not because you can't refunction them in the same <laughs> in quite the same ways. How would those, how would we be able to keep those people in the center of the story? I don't I don't know
0: that places it within this larger crisis that I know you have been thinking a lot about of social reproduction, right? And the ways in which the coronavirus crisis has disproportionately harmed women in kind of like staggering the disproportions, right? (laughs) But also there's already clearly a narrative forming around this being a misogynist mm-hmm. story, right? Our our favorite EdTech carnival parker, Scott Galloway, <laughs> was doing these weird spots on, I don't know if it was CNBC or NSBC, where he's characterizing all of the investors as men living in their basement who aren't getting out enough and aren't aren't getting laid. I mean, literally boiling it down to that. He's already sort of created this narrative where all of the investors are young men, right? And this is an indictment on young men, and by virtue of that, on the women who aren't adequately serving those young men. That's one narrative. And I believe He's already got an option on some sort of Netflix series. So this is one way in which this narrative is already being codified in ways that will disguise right, the larger context. right? And so that's I think it's a great point about this is part of what's at stake here. You both have written about Michelle has written about at great length. This is one of the things that got disguised in two thousand eight too, right? It became a, a very much a boy's story, mm-hmm. right?
1: Well, the, the crisis gets described as a crisis of masculinity and about masculinity, and so then what needs to be recuperated first is masculinity. The idea that the our Wall Street Bets Reddit sub is a proud boys or a um, misogynistic mm-hmm. space was aired early on, and then I was on it when a lot of the women who are on there were making lots of jokes and memes about how they existed i i don't know what the numbers are you know reddit has a long history of problems with harassment and gendered harassment and there's the ellen Powell story
0: and yeah of course I, these
1: are all like these threads that are going to matter and how the story gets told but i think that the like the reason that the super bowl spots matter is because Ultimately, whoever gets to tell their story as we we represent more of the people who actually could be harmed by this or were harmed or could make money where it was meaningful for them and who weren't agents of the um, institutional investors that whoever gets to claim that mantle, I think is going to be important in how the story gets told and operates politically going forward. Part of the reason that Lewis's Big Short Matters is because he did create this opportunity for Iceman and various people to present themselves as underdogs
3: or or
1: heroes, Mm. um, to tell a story where their ability to make money would somehow recuperate the system. I think, Anna, you're exactly right. We have to continue to try to think about and talk about this, placing the working people who are further immiserated by the situation um, at the center. There, There are changes going on that GameStop represents that have serious consequences for people that go beyond you know, whether any of these investors actually make money off of this, but that have to do with the, you know, the stock market's relationship to all of our retirement portfolios and all of our savings writ large. And to the extent that they represent people's voice in these changes as they go forward, I think it's probably good for attention to be on this story in ways that go beyond, because it is going to have... Uh, consequences for how regulators um, like that Massachusetts guy, but also like Yellen, how they get involved, the the way that the story gets told is going to have an impact on how they try to chart what happens next. I don't feel like I can predict the prediction game is part of what the institutional investors are trying to do, but I do think it will matter a lot how people understand this and how people continue to tell it. Like I hadn't read the story about this Polish Bed Bath & Beyond Worker, but now I'm going to go read it because I think it matters not only what happens to her, but how we think about people like her going forward.
0: That was Michelle Chihar with LeClaire LeBourg and Anna Cornblue. I'm Matt Siebel. This has been The American Vandal. For more information about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Robin Hood.